BorgWarner is leading the industry charge to e-mobility with estimated e-product sales in excess of $10 billion by 2027. They're well on their way to becoming a market leader in electric vehicle propulsion. To learn more, visit BorgWarner.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. This is a tough time for startups, both within the transportation realm and beyond. There are a lot of companies that get their initial seed funding or Series A round, and then really struggle to take that next step in this uncertain economic time. One of the biggest challenges, as any founder will tell you, is inking that first big customer or getting that surefire first deal. And that's why I'm so intrigued by what Uplabs is doing and why I've invited Uplabs president, Caitlin Foley, to be my guest on today's episode. Uh, Uplabs, if you don't know, is a first-of-its-kind venture laboratory with offices in Los Angeles and now the Bay Area that builds startups to solve the specific problems of its major corporate clients, like Porsche and Alaska Airlines. One of the main benefits of this arrangement for corporations is that they get their very specific problems addressed often with proprietary data that they provide. And one of the main benefits for founders is that they get that first big client. Uplabs is building six startups for each company over a two-year span. And, you know, that's enough for me. Uh, I'm going to let Caitlin tell you more. Uh, I'm pleased to bring you this conversation with Uplabs president, Caitlin Foley. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here in San Francisco. We just had some rain and maybe we'll get a rainbow. It's gorgeous. The sun's out. Excellent. Uh, well, speaking of San Francisco, I know you just moved there. And from my limited understanding here in Southeast Michigan, uh, I'm under the impression that people are are moving away from San Francisco uh, you know, in droves. So I'm curious, uh, why are you countering that trend if that trend is accurate in my mind? And, and what compelled you to move to San Francisco recently? I think this is still the heart of data science talent and tech talent in general, even moving from Los Angeles where we have Silicon Beach. This is a totally different ballgame up here. So we've been delighted by the new hires that we've made. We just opened a new office at the San Carlos Airport down in San Carlos. And that's been a lot of fun because we have an office at the Santa Monica Airport. So we can actually now fly hangar to hangar, technically. But I just moved to Eureka Valley and I have gorgeous views. The city looks great. Like it couldn't be a better time to move to San Francisco because I feel such a rebirth happening here. Why does Uplab seek out airports for your offices? We focus on mobility. So we like to, to live what we're doing. And funny enough, we just added a perk where we're giving the team a flying lesson as soon as they start as well as ground school. So we're all things, planes, trains, and automobiles, and we think it's important to live that. And most of us are at Up Labs because we're not crypto or metaverse people. Like We live in the real world, and our goal is really to help people and goods move more efficiently. That is quite a unique perk. I've never heard of a company doing that before. So I would imagine that uh, it's unique and therefore substantive in some way. Do you have people uh, who you're recruiting who find that to be... uh, you know, one extra nugget that that brings them along the the pipeline? Absolutely. I think people love that we sort of live what we do. And we have a couple of people who are already pilots on the fun side. Most of that crew are pilots. So sometimes I hitch a ride with them down to LA. It's very, very convenient. 
I've started as well. And I think it's just a blast. Like there's nothing more liberating and freeing than being in a small airplane. So let's back up a second. Uh, for those who don't know, what is Up Labs and uh, what is it that's kind of unique about your business model? Uh, how are you typical, different than a typical business incubator? Up Labs is a venture lab and we work with corporations and we develop portfolios of new companies with them. And I think one of the differentiators in our model is we're not just looking for growth vehicles for corporations. We're really looking to solve their core strategic challenges. And if you think about the whole CVC revolution and the advent of that construct, a lot of what that was intended to do was to find startups that were strategically relevant to these corporations. And I think, unfortunately, since then, it's shifted a little bit more towards a capital vehicle without a, a connection to the heart of the business. And so we're really digging in there and getting into corporations from automotive to energy to airlines and understanding what their core challenges are and solving those by building a startup company together that we actually then allow them to acquire several years down the road. So we've tried to bring together entrepreneurs, corporations, and investors through this financial instrument that really hasn't been done before. And every corporation that we work with becomes the first customer of most of the startups that we launch together. So we have an established pain point. And, and funny enough, I was thinking about this recently, and I feel like if your challenge that you're solving is all over the news, it's probably too late. And so a lot of the fun that I have is trying to find unarticulated problems inside these companies. And that's a lot of what we spend time doing is finding something that looks off where we can bring that to the company's attention. And all of a sudden they're like, wait a second, you're right. That's, that's exactly the aha moments that we're looking for. And then we develop a product by testing it with stakeholders inside of the corporation, but also at their competitors and outside in the market. So we're not a one customer type of vehicle here. We're really looking to solve broader market challenges through this relationship with a corporation. And I'm thinking if I'm a startup founder, you, you've probably solved one of my key problems and what's my first big customer. That's exactly right. And it's funny you say that because the CEOs that we hire come in and they have an established product, an idea, an MVP. They have a challenge that that product is solving. It may not have product market fit at that point, but it has certainly product customer fit, the beginnings of product market fit. They have funding because the venture fund that we're in a strategic partnership with, Up Partners, funds the seed round. And then the corporation has also funded some of the pre-seed. And then they also have an established ecosystem for talent around them. So it's really a phenomenal construct. And then, you know, if this company gets acquired, they have a liquidity event that can happen as early as three years from the time point at which they start. Why did you want to focus on the transportation slash mobility space, if, if I can use those two words interchangeably? Yeah, for me personally, I think that's where most of my daily life's challenges are, is moving people and goods from point A to point B traffic, e-commerce, business travel. These are real world problems that touch a lot of the physical assets that underpin our society. And these are some of the hardest things to actually shift. And so a lot of what we're doing is software for hardware. So how do you go in and really understand these systems, route these assets, you know, touch these assets and actually leverage them, optimize them, et cetera. So we're not in the hardware business. I should qualify that. As Uplabs, we don't develop new hardware. There may be one, our portfolios are six companies with every corporation, possibly one time out of six 
We might do something in the IoT space, a little bit of a hardware and software hybrid, but we're really focused on the software and systems that make these assets run incredibly efficiently and sustainably too, because there's a lot of mandates now coming into automotive in particular that are causing massive shifts in that industry towards EVs. In terms of mostly avoiding hardware then, is that just because in the transportation space, uh, the time to market is so long for developing something that's new and maybe needs to go through certification or, or regulation, et cetera? That's part of it. But a lot of it is, I think, the companies that we work with in Porsche, namely, do a fantastic job in that space. Why reinvent the wheel, right? And so it's it's really the biggest product pivot of all time is the shift from ICE vehicles to EVs. And I would say that even the most legacy automotive companies have, have mastered that beautifully. The difficult thing has been the software and services and kind of customer experience around that. And that's unfortunate for an OEM because the main touch point that they have is that dealership experience, but then they're not controlling or really as involved in the, the final years of experience after that. That's the bulk of what someone's experience is with your car brand. And that will determine whether or not they come back and buy from you again or never buy from you at all. Okay, then backing up a second, I think Uplabs launched maybe a little more than a year ago. Uh, and Porsche is your is slash was your, your first customer. Uh, what exactly are you doing with Porsche? Uh, you kind of mentioned you're building six companies overall. Where where are you at with uh, with that goal in mind? Yeah, that's right. We launched in January of 2022. And Porsche is our first and kind of flagship corporate partner. And we are in a three-year relationship with them. So we're launching six companies together. And we have now launched two of those companies. So one company we launched in March of 2023. Actually, they hosted South by Southwest this year. So we got to launch it there. It's called Cole Systems. And this is a battery health management platform. And when we spoke before and you wrote an article where you mentioned Pull. I told you that the battery predictions are 33 days in advance. So we can predict whether or not a battery will fail 33 days before a failure. And we can actually shift that to a replacement event. We're now at up to 59 days. So this is this model is just getting smarter and smarter. And the reason why this is such an important problem, and I would put this in the category of, you know, this isn't being blasted all over the news. But when you look in depth at an organization that has this massive liability on their balance sheet, which is batteries in all the vehicles that they have out on the road. So a lesser known fact is one of the regulatory components of the EV space is that an OEM is responsible for a battery up to eight years after the vehicle sells. And so if that battery goes below a certain capacity, the OEM has to replace it. And these are, you know, $30,000, $50,000, depending on the performance of the battery. And so this is just a massive liability. And it doesn't sound like a very big problem when you have 100,000 cars on the road and they're new. Right. But this becomes an enormous challenge when you have a million aging cars on the road. And so we're shifting these replacement events to repair events, which is a lot less expensive. And it's also better for the customer experience as well. So, so that's pull systems. And then we recently launched Sensigo, which is focused on the automotive repair and maintenance space more broadly, not just batteries, but all, all components on the vehicle. And it, it really targets the service technician and the service center, which is an integral part of the car owner experience. It is, and I feel like service technicians are, I don't wanna say being left behind, but um, you know they're used to doing certain 
tasks related to a lot of internal combustion engines. And now, uh, you know, the shift to EVs is underway. So if, if they're not feeling it yet, I feel like suddenly that their job requirements uh, will change significantly in the future, right? Is that what Sensigo addresses in some way? I think you're exactly right. What we've seen is there's a shift in the type of work that they're doing each day. So these are folks who formerly were doing oil changes. This is super high margin. There's a ton of throughput inside the service center base in doing that type of work. And now what happens is you have multiple error codes displayed at once. A car comes in. Most of the time, folks call in advance. They bring the car in. There's no preview as to what the problem could be. And then this person who had formerly been focused on kind of the car hardware is now really focused on the car software and the integration between the hardware and the software. So even reinstalling a windshield, for example, there are probably 20 sensors associated with that process that you have to reattach. And what we're trying to do is really take the historical, so the quickest route to a fix and apply AI to understand how we can direct a service technician to do this more quickly and efficiently. And then that's a better customer experience. It also increases the throughput and the profit of the service center of each bay. Because right now, the time that a car can sit in a bay, actually since COVID, has doubled, which is pretty shocking. People are keeping their cars for longer. Cars are more complex. It's really a computer on wheels. And so service centers have to adapt to that reality. And we believe that the main user in all of this is the technician. And that's who we really want to focus on. That's who's feeling the pain in his or her day job. Well, this is interesting too, because I think one of the concerns of dealerships in the EV era, uh, and there's news on that where dealerships are pushing back against President Biden's EV plans just in the last uh, few days. But uh, I think one of their concerns is like that proverbial oil change uh, is one of their biggest profit centers. And now that's that's poised to be reduced in some form or fashion. Um, and they're looking for ways to uh, bring people back to the dealership and, and also better serve customers uh, without that oil change being a central touch point uh, in the relationship. That's exactly right. And there's also an intricate relationship between OEMs and their dealer-owned service centers. So when a car is under warranty and there's a certain number of hours that have already been spent on trying to diagnose the OEM actually has to pay for that. So there's a there's a, a kick-in point where the OEM starts to cover extra charges because a warranty is taking longer than what was prescribed. So there's a lot of incentives for everybody to have this be quite a bit more efficient. There just hasn't been a concerted effort to collect data and information around this and ultimately provide that in a way that's digestible to a service center technician. And there are a lot of public data sets too. It's not just the historicals. You know, there are OEM logs, obviously, that we're using that we have access to because of our relationship with Porsche. But there's public information around recalls and warranties that's actually held at the federal level because the government manages large recalls. So we've had a lot of interesting disparate data sets that we've been able to bring together to get to some of the the changes and KPIs that we're seeing around that process. So these are the first two companies that you've created for Porsche. To the extent that you can, uh, what's what are you looking at now uh, with the four remaining companies for, for Porsche? One of the things that interests me is, you know, when you're building out a full supply chain in the EV space, for example, it's sort of been based on what's needed at the time, right? We 
focused on extraction of raw materials and producing these batteries and then ultimately inserting them into vehicles that had been reconfigured or completely designed from the ground up like the Taycan on the factory floor. One of the things that's been left off is the end of life in that process. So this has been really a supply chain that's sort of getting built as there are needs, which is kind of cool to see. And so one of the needs that we've seen is OEMs, dealerships, any type of facility that might have an end-of-life battery really has a hard time understanding all the options for disposing of it, recycling it, you know, et cetera. And so the battery reverse logistics process is one of the areas that we're going to tackle next. We're really excited about that. I think supply chain in general and really just the intricacy around all the tiers involved in automotive and the fragility around that is something that we've been trying to tackle since the beginning. It's something that we hope we end up launching in our final year together. It's a really hard space just because of all the stakeholders involved and the need to really align incentives between them. Uh, But those are some of the spaces that we're looking at. We're also looking at just the incredible amount of data that's collected off of vehicles and how you can smoothen out that process. Lots of other spaces. I was going to ask you about supply chains, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up. I think you just used the word fragility around them. Um, Is that geopolitical? Is that COVID-inspired? What are some of the big themes and changes that you have seen and and some of the problems that have resulted uh, in supply chain management? My take is that it was already a fragile ecosystem before. So a lot of the big legacy OEMs spent decades over-optimizing this space. And they ended up creating this very sensitive, delicate system. And so then you apply things like geopolitics and world affairs and COVID to that, and then you have a really big meltdown. And so that's kind of been the story of the past several years. And so you know, in, in my mind, the OEMs actually took probably too much margin and value from a lot of the suppliers that they were working with, really on down to the lowest levels, because that had a trickle-down effect. When you do that with your tier one suppliers, they're doing that to the tier twos who are doing it to the tier threes, you know, and on down. And so I think for us, there are communication flows and data flows that need to happen, certainly, but there's also a money flow that needs to happen. And, and probably a way to, to redistribute some of that profit back into that ecosystem. You see companies like Tesla that are much more vertically integrated. To be honest, I don't think that's going to be a reality for a lot of the big OEMs. I actually think they should continue to focus on software because that's where they can be competitive. And I think it's more about new tools, new constructs financially and otherwise for them to work more effectively with their suppliers. Are you saying in some way that automakers have been penny wise and pound foolish and and squeezing suppliers uh, so that if nothing goes wrong, then that was worthwhile. But but as we know, there's there's big hiccups and lines get shut down uh, when you get to that point. Am I reading that right? Absolutely. And there's another element where probably there's some systems that would help you understand where you have inherent risks, right? If you have one component wiring harnesses, for example, that you're producing in only Ukraine, that's a risk, right? And that's the case before a war breaks out, then you're going to have a problem if that does happen. And so I think it's a, it's a mix. It's, it's certainly the need to take profit and redistribute that, but it's also places where you need to understand that you have more risk and you need to actually make a change or 
not be so siloed in the way that you're producing something. Is that automotive specific right now, or are you seeing the same thing uh, in other sectors, maybe aviation, uh, since you work with Alaska Airlines, or are there parallels, if, if not the same thing? I definitely see parallels. I think it, and Uplabs is going to work in a lot of what I call over-optimized ecosystems, where you have in automotive, it's the supply chain. In airlines, it's a lot of the day-to-day operations. I mean, it's insane that these companies, it's, it's one of the safest industries in the world. That's one of my big takeaways. But the operational complexity around how Alaska runs their business hour to hour is mind-blowing. And it's interesting because there are a lot of folks that have military backgrounds inside of their operations team, just a phenomenal world-class team that they have over there. And a lot of this is being done now in human minds. And so really what we're looking at is how can you combine the knowledge inside of someone's mind with AI to understand how you schedule routes, to understand where crew are at a given time, to understand where ground services equipment is located at an airport, to look at the maintenance space, because that's another really interesting one. And even the way that they think about pricing and revenue management. So really all topics inside the airline industry have been optimized to the nth degree, and it's been done by people. And part of that is because it's also a very low margin industry. Backing up a little bit, uh, how far along are you in your work with Alaska Airlines? What sort of startups have you created for them thus far? We kicked off with Alaska in July, and we're really excited to be working with them because I think they're just a phenomenally customer and employee forward organization. And so we're now in our first one-year cycle, and on December 18th, we are picking the two businesses that will move forward this year. And so they're focused on some of the topics that I mentioned. Maintenance is a big one. Really excited about that space, both predictive maintenance, but also normalizing the schedule to actually do maintenance more effectively and efficiently. Um, We're looking at scheduling optimization and, and how you rethink the way that you schedule aircraft. And then we're also looking at pricing and revenue and how that's done today. We're going to take a short break from my conversation with Caitlin. When we return, she's going to share her concerns about over-optimization and what that means for both the automotive supply chain and the aviation industry. The global transformation to e-mobility is happening. And within the industry, one product leader is charging forward with a confidence built on 130 years of automotive achievement. That's Borg Warner. Borg Warner has a long track record of bringing innovative mobility solutions to market. And now this know-how is accelerating a global transformation with e-product sales of more than $10 billion expected in 2027. Sound ambitious? Not for Borg Warner. This accelerated shift to electrification is all part of their long-term strategy, one that's been in motion for years. Now they're harnessing this momentum, building on their scale, portfolio, financial strength, and team to lead the way into the future. To help make such major advancements in e-mobility solutions, BorgWarner relies on its cutting-edge technology and electrification expertise. Combined with their real commitment to partnership and collaboration, they're poised for continued success. For BorgWarner, it's all with one objective in mind, creating a cleaner, more energy-efficient world a sustainable one where we can all live better, healthier lives. To learn more, visit BorgWarner.com. 
The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is, is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to my conversation with UpLabs president, Caitlin Foley. So UpLabs has these two big customers or clients so far, Porsche and Alaska Airlines. Are your deals with them exclusive or would you work with another airline, another automaker uh, as you look for future corporate clients? So we actually have a third corporate partner that we haven't announced yet that's in the retail space. And we will announce that at some point. So we're, we're three right now. We plan to expand to four and we're looking at some other spaces like energy, aerospace and defense, maritime shipping for next year. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but you are right. So we do not work with a second automotive company or a second airline. We work with one player per industry. And the way that I think about this in some ways is, and this is why the choice is important. It needs to be a good fit on both sides and it needs to be a company that has the brand and the operational excellence. And that's what I think we've done a great job of choosing in each of these industries to really be the front runner and, and take these solutions, implement them, but also help affect change across the full industry. And our portfolio companies can serve and work with competitors and other players inside that ecosystem. But you know, we as Uplabs won't. So that's a difference. And I think that's important because we're not going in and saying, hey, we want to make Porsche the very best automotive company in the world. I mean, certainly I want to do that to some extent, but I'm really looking at the automotive industry and saying, I want to make this industry work and help usher it into its next era in electrification. And I want Porsche to be the front runner and leader in doing that. And so that's the way we think about this. And we have a set criteria when we evaluate corporate partners and when they evaluate us, and it does include operational excellence their ability to innovate, their acquisition history, their setup. Do they have a CVC? How are they doing R&D? You know, how has M&A historically been at the company? So it's a number of criteria that we're using to understand whether or not this could be a good fit for Uplabs. When you look at the next era in automotive and, and helping kind of a legacy OEM like Porsche, if not the industry, kind of evolve, curious if you see a convergence between automakers and the energy sector? And, and is that an opportunity? Are those Venn diagrams kind of increasingly overlapping? Absolutely. We can see that. So we are launching a fourth company with Porsche in the smart charging space. And actually, utilities are one of the constituents or potential customer groups that we can work with through that. 
And so I think that's very fair. I think you're, you're seeing things like the possibility of bi-directional charging, which is really exciting, and the vehicle actually becoming an energy source inside the home. So absolutely, I think we're going to see quite a bit of convergence there. And I also think we're going to see challenges with regulation. So if you look at the EU and some of the regulation around electrification hasn't actually considered grid stability and the grid infrastructure that's required. And so that's unfortunate when those calculations aren't being done, but they get done in real time. So it's going to happen and unfold before our eyes. And we're going to be there to see those problems emerging and help solve them. This may be like way like 50,000 foot view question as opposed to 30,000. But um, do you see an energy source over the next 25 years that wins out? Is it is it battery electric? Is it hydrogen? Uh, is, does nuclear make a comeback? And how do some of those big energy questions play into uh, you know some specific strategies? It depends on what the asset is. So in aircraft, hybrid electric is really exciting, especially for some of the short haul distances. I think in vehicles, I'm actually pro electrification, hydrogen, and then also Porsche has some investments in e-fuels, which I think could be great for some of the niche use cases like class car, classic cars and some of the, the vehicles, ICE vehicles that we want to keep on the road for whatever reason. So to be honest with you, I think it's going to be all of the above. And I think it will d- depend on country location, their availability and access to certain types of resources, and then the way that they construct an infrastructure around this. So with, with electrification, obviously charging is the big question and how we lay out charging infrastructure. And I think in California, we've done a great job. So in some ways, it's a test case for that, but it's not rolled out to the rest of the U.S. It's not a reality for other folks in the U.S. So this is it, it should end up being focused on supply and demand and a gentle rollout that where we continue to produce EVs, the charging infrastructure continues to be added. And I think that's what's happening now. I actually think it's been, I know there's been a lot of turmoil at the corporate level in the past months, but when you think about what a big shift this is, it's actually been somewhat harmonious. Back to Uplabs for a second. I want to ask you, uh, like, where does Uplabs fit in the greater up constellation if that's the way the right way to think about this i know it's it's one division uh that that is in concert with like up summits and up ventures etc yeah we have three elements of the up ecosystem and one is up partners which is a 250 million dollar venture fund and that's a fund one and so they're raising fund two and beyond right now um, they are our close strategic partner and they actually fund our seed rounds. They lead the seed round. And so that's a really important relationship for us, not only from a funding perspective, but just from a talent and advisory perspective. So phenomenal group of operating partners that are part of that team. And then Up Partners host the annual Up Summit, which is really the who's who of mobility. I'm always amazed at some of the guests that we have. We just held that event in early October where we got to launch Sensigo formally. We had folks from Porsche. Porsche actually hosted a driving experience and moved it from Atlanta to Dallas, a really incredible event. And then of course we have labs. And you know, as I mentioned before, we are we're not an accelerator, we are an incubator. So we're working with corporations and we're coming up with ideas from scratch to solve unarticulated challenges that we're finding. And another way to think about our work that helps me is we're really the white space in between what a corporation can do on their own and what they can find in the market. So if you can find something out in the market that's readily available, that solves the problem, we say, go do that. 
if the corporation has the resources, the talent, the, the capacity to solve the problem on their own, we also say, go do that. And sometimes we unearth problems in our process that fall in either of those two buckets and we facilitate the next steps there. But in many cases, we find things that just haven't quite been solved or grabbed by the market and are really just not appropriate and are distracting from the core business to solve inside of the corporation. Caitlin, how did you get interested in this work in particular uh, and, and kind of start your career overall? I've been doing this very thing for 10 years. It's kind of wild. So I joined BCG Digital Ventures in 2014. We were probably 50 people then. The team has scaled to around 1,000 since then and become a really integral part of BCG. I love zero to one or really zero to 0.5. And then I also love working with big companies and being able to affect change quickly. And I think that's the fun of this role is it's an invention role because we're not taking ideas or we're not, you know, we're not a Y Combinator where we're bringing people into the ecosystem who have ideas. We're coming up with those ideas. We have a pretty rich toolkit for doing that. And then we're also influencing and understanding how that's going to be implemented in some of the largest and most important companies in the world. And so I love that, that challenge of, of both of those things. And it's a hard mind shift. And so, you know, we do have phases of work. The first around three to four months are spent in ideation, and then the remainder of the year is spent in build. But for me, because I run all of our portfolios and I'm stretched across Alaska, Porsche, and then our retail partner, there's always some level of ideation, some level of you know, working with a big company and working with leadership teams there, and then some level of sales and business development in my day. All three of those things probably happen every day. And so that's a lot of fun, but it's, it's a lot of mind shifting for sure. So going back to Up Summit for a second, uh, I, I think you said you were in Dallas. I'm curious what, uh, what caught your attention this, this past fall and what was the most compelling or unusual thing that you saw that has perhaps sparked some new ideas? We had opener, so the Black Fly, which is a um, new, basically a flying car. It's incredible, incredible piece of technology. They just rebranded to Pivotal, so they did some demos for us. That was a lot of fun. One of the wilder ones was Telio, which is a startup that the UP team has invested in. It's a construction tech startup. So they sensorize construction equipment. We were able to operate a bulldozer in Finland from this event. So that was really interesting. And actually, they had a stat that blew me away, which is it's it's not just about remote operation and freeing someone from being inside of a, a bulldozer, but they are now at a point where an operator can operate multiple vehicles at once. And I found that mind-blowing. That that's interesting from a you know an automation and a teleoperation perspective that. A, that you can operate that many vehicles at a given time, but but also like that's such a good example of like a structured version of autonomy. Obviously, like on public roads, having fully autonomous vehicles are they're having some struggles right now, very clearly, I think, or some limitations. But I think a place that that works is non-public roads in a in a structured environment. That seems to be what you're describing with that. That's right. That's right. These are construction sites specifically. And just a lot of other mind-blowing equipment. We saw a, a sea glider. Um, so just wild, wild demos. And you said that it was in Dallas this year. And I think it does it rotate between uh, Dallas and, and Bentonville. Uh, 
It does. Yes. Okay. The Dallas event is co-hosted with the Perot family. And then the Bentonville event is co-hosted with the Walton family. It's so interesting to think of Dallas and Bentonville as being the showcase locations for future of transportation technology. Uh, not necessarily the, the first two locations that w- would come to mind. Uh, you know, I would think San Francisco area or uh, Mojave Desert, if that's where, if, you know, aviation in particular. But but here we are in uh, southern middle America with with the uh, latest transportation technology. You know, Bentonville is actually in this unbelievable spot where it feels like it's about to take off and talent is attracted there. A lot of that is because of the corporate presence, but it's proximity to essentially the center of the United States. So in some ways, when you look at transportation and mobility, it's a critical location because of the need to ship goods you know, out of there from the Walmart perspective. I mean, they're doing drone deliveries. I think they've been doing drone deliveries for a while. It's sort of this secret future test bed. And when you go there, you see that and you're, you're kind of blown away because it's not widely known. And we actually held that event at the Crystal Bridges Art Museum, which I love art museums. I've been to most of the big ones around the world. Every time I'm on a business trip, I always take a few hours to go to whatever great exhibit there is happening. And I was blown away by this museum. It's gorgeous. And their collection, their permanent collection is amazing. So there's a lot going on down there. I highly recommend visiting and seeing it for yourself because I was shocked. We'll have to check that out. Um, Caitlin, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Uh, we certainly look forward to hearing about uh, you know, your next piece of news here in the short term on December 18th or thereabouts and staying connected uh, over the long term as well. Likewise, this has been a blast, Pete. Thank you so much. All right. I'm so glad we could have Caitlin on the podcast today. And you know, I've always heard Bentonville is lovely in the fall. Next year, I guess. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if so, please leave us a review or subscribe to The Shift Podcast at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to Caitlin for her time. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.